it's a big responsibility, but it's also a massively lucrative opportunity to create a really good experience. That was Jonathan joining me on this podcast with his co-founder, Edward. You may know Jonathan and Edward from Meteor Wallet or from Near Tinker Union, but when I think of Jonathan and Edward, I like to refer to them as the degenerate founders. And they're not degenerate because they're irresponsible. Degenerate is an endearing term that alludes to their connection with the community. I love this podcast because we go all the way to the beginning, to the unlikely but beautiful ways in which Edward in Malaysia and Jonathan in South Africa connect through near Tinker Union, their experience through NFT communities, and the many twists and turns that lead them to eventually found and grow Meteor Wallet, and even being given the keys to the kingdom to maintain my near wallet. Along the way, there are many cheeky surprises waiting for you. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Jonathan and Edward as much as I did. Without further ado, let's go! Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, ABB. Today, I've got with me two very bad ombres, Jonathan and Edward, co-founders at Meteor. Welcome, friends. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to have you. This has been a long time in the making. Yeah, I remember the first time you mentioned it was like two or three months ago when we were in Jakarta, in Paris HQ. We were in Jakarta. That's crazy. It wasn't long ago, but it also feels a long time ago. Three months, I think. Two to three months. And then... In, in Vietnam, right? And that didn't happen. And then Lisbon as well. Correct. <laughs> and then we saw each other in Vietnam and Lisbon. See, the rule is if you get to three continents, that's too much. You cancel it. But we only got to two. We're good. We're good. Very acceptable. So why don't you start by having a quick round of introductions? Edward, would you like to go first? Sure. I can go first. My name is Edward. I'm based in Malaysia. I'm the co-founder of Nia Thinker Union and also Meteor Wallet. My background is actually software engineer. So I've been software engineer for six years and all that. That started early though. I was quite fortunate that I got introduced into a few freelance jobs during university times. So I got a little bit early exposure as compared to most. Yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Thanks for that. Sir Jonathan? Yeah, so my name is Jonathan. I come from the background of being an internet entrepreneur, uh, running an e-commerce company here in South Africa for the past 10 years. And that sparked my early interest for merging tech and things like that. Turned into crypto 2016, 2016 side, more on the early speculative type of nature. And then ended up meeting Edward through Nia Tinker Union in early Feb 2022, when I found my way to the Nia blockchain as the space in the community, I thought I could see myself hanging around in the long term. But yeah, that's a, that's a summary. That's amazing. I first want to let everyone know that together, us three, I'm just plugging myself into the team now. We are the global South. <laughs> Malaysia, South Africa, Australia, we may often be ignored, but if you look at the talent on the projects coming from the global South, the population, young, energy, ambitious, beautiful, I think we can do this. Yeah, exactly. So that's the beauty of kind of crypto, especially I think it's like one of the biggest wins is for talents and people from these emerging economies that to participate in, in what crypto is about. So I think it's like the great equalizer in a way as well. 
yes, although sometimes when people mention the great equalizer or access to opportunity, I think it's a nuanced argument because I'm like, hey, make the most of those opportunities and be ambitious because otherwise what we see is a bunch of people that are suddenly, I guess they just expand the range of scams they have available to them. And I'm like, this is not the behavior we want to be exporting. Like now we all look bad. So yeah, I, I always like to see those journeys of self-improvement and progression. People start anywhere, but it's, they keep unlocking new levels in a video game. It's actually pretty awesome. Exactly. I think we're actually pretty lucky considered where we started as NFT community. I think how we can manage to grow, continue growing and continue delivering something on you. I think it's exactly like what you mentioned. It's not unlocking different levels. There's many reasons why I wanted to have you guys on the podcast. I don't know if you've seen it. Not everyone makes it on the podcast, both a timing issue. And I just want to make sure that there's a story to tell. I'm not going to lie, sleeping with Edward in Jakarta may have had a... Same bad, sir. Same bad. We didn't even do that when you were in Malaysia. Yeah. Yeah, it was was a bit too intimate for my choice, but anyway. And then, just to get it all out, we both got Airbnbs that were mysteriously in the same building. (laughs) We didn't know. We didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know you do. Until we finally met the other day. People at the powerhouse office asked me if you were stalking me. Well, no, you were stalking me. No, that's no reason I would stalk you. They actually did inquire as to what the nature of the relationship was. But anyway, part of the story is (laughs) beautiful relationship. And there's several threats. The first one is an NFT project that survived and grew into something else. The second one would be that really rapid ascent as core infrastructure. Suddenly you go from being a wallet, one of many side, to the main year wallet being deprecated and very rapidly being pushed to the front. And then the third one, working remotely and just like that cross-cultural collaboration. There's just a lot there that I find interesting, mostly because I'm always very isolated in my little island, but also There's a lot of collaboration issues, as you may see, both in our ecosystem and others. So maybe we can start with the NFTs. Like, how did that happen? What's the story of the near Tinker Union? I'll start first, and Jonathan can call in and add anything if if I may talk. So it was pretty interesting. Actually, that's is actually where I started my real crypto journey. So I mentioned just now, I've been a developer for five to six years, and I've always been in fintech domain. So my first job is actually a crypto company itself, but it was, that was, I think, 2017 during ICO era. But the company itself, it's only, it's more like a payment gateway company. So that was the time that I got exposed to Bitcoin, Ethereum, essentially all of the shit coins on, shit tokens on Ethereum as well during that era. Back then, I didn't really believe in crypto considering all the things I got exposed to, like X token, Y token, that's got- XRP, Dogecoin. <laughs> Let's not talk about them. I don't want to, I don't want to get, get you into trouble today. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was actually like, you're right. Like Cardano is one of them. One of the reasons that I was a little bit not so bullish back then with crypto. So after I left the company, I joined the biggest e-wallet in Malaysia. That's a uh, touch and go digital. So the penetrate, it's basically dominating the e-wallet uh, market 
in Malaysia, I think more than 85% of the populations in Malaysia, that's essentially 25 millions of people in Malaysia use touch and go you, if not. And there was a time that I realized this thing is actually pretty cool. Like wallets actually pretty cool because if you look at Asia or I would say mostly Asia, you realize that just within that application itself, small applications, wallet applications, you can basically do everything. It's basically your entrance to your daily life. You use it to pay for your groceries. You can use it to buy car insurance. You can use it to buy your health insurance, pay for the parking, utility bills, almost everything. And now they are also integrating with um, Google Pay and then things like that. So that was the time that I realized wallet is super app. Go ahead. Wait, is it still the crypto wallet that can do all those things? Or we're talking about like the general, the, uh, the super that app, was just WeChat style application? Yes, that is just e-wallet, just general e-wallet, like fiat e-wallet, not a crypto. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the, back then, like I was working in this fintech company. Then I quit the company because I thought it is great, but I don't want to just be a developer. So I want to try to contribute to something else because when it comes to new corporates, sometimes you realize that your personal contribution doesn't always link back to your promotions. Well, you want to be able to contribute to something bigger, not being bogged down by certain rules or levels, a system or hierarchy. I quickly realized that isn't something I wanted to do. So I just left it. I just left the company and I spent two to three months trying to look for, hey, what can I really contribute to this country? I, I, I don't want to say I'll contribute to the world because that sounds a little bit too ambitious. But what can I do to change some people's life to a certain extent? I was looking into different things. Like I remember back then, the first thing I was looking into is actually virtual YouTuber. The uh, So you can have the entire virtual image of yourself. Then, you know, like people like this, you don't really have to be a sexy woman to be sexy. <laughs> or a woman. I, can I do that? <laughs> you share this thing can be published on YouTube. Nice. I've been thinking about it, but I'll t let you tell your story. <laughs> yeah. So then the next thing is actually crypto. And it's pretty funny. The reason I got into crypto is because I started using Twitter because I realized if I want to really follow the trends, I, I thought like Twitter was the best place to actually look at people, get the first hand source. I started using Twitter. I started looking to different technology blog posts. I think that was back in 2020, late 2020 or 2021, I think. Good time then, to get started. Exactly, exactly. So that's during the DeFi summer. And then a lot of people have been talking about DeFi. It is quite hard to comprehend DeFi at the time. But I was a little bit more lucky because I was exposed to crypto before that. And in order to understand a lot of things on crypto, you really need to have that like technical fundamentals or like foundation to pick them. How much did you feel that things had changed from like the early shitcoin days in 2018 to the beginning of DeFi summer in 2020? But because back then during 2017, people had always say like crypto has no intrinsic value. Like it doesn't do anything. It doesn't contribute to this society. But on 2020, we start seeing that crypto or the blockchain can actually contribute to financial system. We can really take out middlemen right now. Things can work without middlemen like broker, like bank. So that's time that's like fundamentally different. A real use yeah, case. Yeah. I forgot Jonathan was here, but we'll jump to you in just one pair. 
I promise. Yeah, so taking going back to the NCU, right? So I think the first one is which. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, yeah, no, so like, um, no, I love it. I think it says a lot about the working relationship as well. What you don't say is equally important. But to your point, I remember we had one of the early employees of what later became Avi. It was called Something Lend back in the day. We hosted a meetup with him in Melbourne. We were running Ethereum Melbourne. And he gave this presentation. He's all, oh, you could have all these tokens, presumably as collateral, to borrow dollars. And I was like, why in the fuck would anyone ever deposit dollars knowing that somebody can borrow that money and leave as collateral this shitty token with no value? So I guess that it wasn't always obvious. And I don't even think that the criticism at the time was unfounded. Like it has taken a time to really marinate not only where the value comes from, but to even create that longer tail of assets that may represent some value to some people. Yeah. I like that longer tail of asset. I I think that's actually what crypto is meant for. It is um, very decentralized. Like you can define it yourself and that actually open up a lot of different things for like smaller communities. You don't really have to use certain currency if you don't trust it. And you could call it log tail assets or big ass. Jonathan, your turn. Yeah, so I, we're getting at kind of the origins of, of NTU, right? So when Edward got to start that, I didn't really get there, but my, my journey there was somewhat similar. I'd say less technical than Edward's, but I was also just trading speculative tokens. I knew that there was some sort of long-term value and to crypto, but I always thought it was very far away. And I had fun. Crypto's entertaining. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of people uh, on Twitter, yeah, interesting conversations. I was involved with crypto kitties and was looking at alternative ones. And it was all just mainly trading and, and speculation. I was actually a guy called Naval Ravikant. He's a, uh, an interesting guy that I follow. And it was him when I sparked my interest in Nier specifically, when he mentioned that Nier was like ETH, except roadmap implemented when he was referring to sharding. And that for me was the moment when I was like, look, okay, I'm interested in crypto. I, I don't have the energy trading and to be doing the whole speculative thing throughout. How do I get involved, find smart people and stick in a place for kind of a couple of years and create value? And where would that be? And that's when I spent a couple of months, was in Solana as an alternative L1, uh, was okay. And then looked to Nier from there. And I, and I said, look, I think Nier is the place that I'm most comfortable to do this. I looked at thought Ilya and the team was extre- extremely, had a really mm-hmm. good background. The, the, they were well-resourced as, a, as an L1, but big tier VCs. And like their focus on onboarding developers, like developer tooling. I love that the web wallet was like this easy wallet and wasn't Chrome extension. So there was like a lot of small things that I was like, hey, this just makes sense for adoption and it looks interesting. And that's where Edward, when I met him and he had started NTU as a Netink union, which is an NFT collection of 3,333 Tinkers. And essentially the premise was, and this is, Edward can speak to it better, but it was just a union of kind of these people within the community that were interested to, to build products and share that, that value and with the holders of the utility and spawn early community like that. I quickly saw when Edward, um, started the mint, they even did things with the mint with pre tokens and they were innovating on how they launched the collection to their own mint, like having the end leap, which was a no code generative NFT launch pad, which was essentially the first product that that they, you know, were planning on building. So all of that was like extremely impressive to me. And I was just early days looking at these kind of NFT communities. And so I literally just DM'd Edward and I was like, dude, uh, I think what you're doing is amazing. I just keep being involved. Can I volunteer my time? Can I help 
not going to help manage the community, do things like that. And I was running my own company at the same time, but I was also like, this is the space I wanted to be in the full time, this is the future. And so that's how I was the start of it. You know what? I was really surprised when Jonathan asked for Thinker as payment instead of the one payment. With couple of he was like, no, I need to pay you. I was like, just yes. send me NFTs. I do. I just. Then there was a time I realized I can work with this man because he's here for long term. He's not for any short term gain. He's here for quicker. No, 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 no. Affordable. Affordable. So, long term. Yes, sir. There is so much there that I love. I remember we were at a party in East Denver like the two years ago. And Jordan, after a few margaritas, mojitos, whatever, he's like, near Ticker Union, you should, you should look into getting some. And it was Jordan interesting because, so Jordan, shout out to Jordan. Yes. It was interesting <laughs> because if you know Jordan, you know that he would never in his life, even if he tried, would pick an NFT to make a profit from it. He is more for the art, aligned by the principles. It, it's a people thing. I'm sure that if you ask him, pick any three NFTs from your huge portfolio and tell me what the floor price is, he wouldn't be able to tell you. Him and I are very much aligned in, in that sense. And yeah, I, I got some tinkers back then. I don't know, I've got them spread out in different worlds. Maybe, maybe I should buy more because I like the team to support the art. I'm curious, before we get to the Meteor era, What's happened with Tinker Union like, over time? Is the group still active? What's uh, the latest with that cohort? That's actually super interesting. So can, like maybe start with like how we decided to shift from like the launch pad at the, the and leap launch pad to wallet. It was, I think, early 2022. I've got like start- nine hours. It's, it's still daytime for Jonathan. <laughs> Go for as long as you want. <laughs> I remember that was like early 2022. I started seeing all the volumes drop across different blockchains in terms of NFT trading everywhere. And then from my past experience on NTU, I've realized that most of the liquidity on the year actually came from Solana. So I realized I want to build real things, but at the same time, I have to be a little bit more realistic that people would stop putting in more money if they are not making more money elsewhere. The only reasons the liquidity didn't come on to near is because they made money elsewhere and they thought they can repeat their success on near. And when they start seeing that on any other blockchain, they're going to start investing. And then smart. I... That is very smart. That's multi-tiered thinking. Do you know how many people in the world are able to think like that? Not many. <laughs> I wasn't able to think, I wasn't able to think like that about how many people are able to think like that. That says everything. But yeah, so there's the time I realized we need to shift to something. But I couldn't find many things that I feel interested enough in building. But I was lucky because NTU community back then was still very, I think it's still very active right now, considered the macro. So we talked to the community members and said, what else do you think we can build? I remember many people suggested NFT marketplace, more NFT marketplace, fragment pragmatize like an NFT marketplace and then like NFT lending and borrowing, we just rejected them all until I remember this. It was actually near Big Brain who first reached out to us and asked us, hey guys, do you want to build a wallet? At first, I was pretty dumb because I was like, 
Wallet, interesting, but let's look at the competitors. No, Nier has an official wallet. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to compete head to head with that. Um, so actually we missed out the early opportunity, like at least for one or two until we you finally didn't take it. I didn't take it at first. Yeah. What a shame, right? And then also during that time, we were discussing like with Jonathan. Like we've been talking like, what, what, what do we want to build? How much resources are we going to keep investing on NFT? Because as a team, especially from where we started, we wanted to, for Neotinker Union, we want to build something for long-term. Ultimately, we want to make sure whatever value we're creating, not just for us, not just for ecosystem, it's also for our holders. That's why whenever we're building, we've always tried to redis this, redistribute some of the values that we created back to the holders. So you do limited. I'm a holder. I never, never received shit. What do I have to do? Since it's a video, okay. And just really quickly, when you say the team, is that the, like the Tinker Union team or the members of the Tinker Union? But I think Jordan can speak to this, but it's the team plus community. We have a team of elite thinkers that join us in a lot of discussions, but please go ahead, Jordan. That's nice. Yeah. Just reps. When Edward started NTU, it was with him and a bunch of friends from his university, NTU. And so that was Henry and Jens. The name. Exactly. Um, OG University. <laughs> and then as, as Edward mentioned, every product that was built, was the ethos was that we can generate some sort of revenue. We'll have some sort of profit share into the community or fi find some sort of way to, to build utility into that. That team, like I said, was expanded with myself. My brother came on as well. And other members, as we started to move towards me to want it. So the team has definitely expanded since then and taken a bit more strategic direction. And yeah, for us, but just coming back to what Edward said in terms of the holders and, and the community, we had a lot of early members that stuck with us, like throughout all these conversations, like in our discord, we had a warm chat, but kind of the really enthusiastic team members as well that would always like help give us a feedback and help ideate with us. And, you know, we still have, I would say a pretty thriving community of really enthusiastic guys that, that come into our discord. And we have a lot of updates within the NFT community. We launched our own token called Gear Token, where you like stake the tinkers, you got Gear Token. We put a lot of the early money we made from like the NFT mints into Quiddity Pool and allowed people to exchange it into kind of into stable coins if they wanted to or use it for raffles and other things. So we tried to follow the NFT metas, right? <laughs> that kind of all the NFT collections we're doing. And then now as the wallet comes into shape, we're still trying to essentially simplify a lot of what was legacy and near Tinker Union, the old token, what that looks like and bring that utility and hold the benefit coming into Meteor as that shape's going forward. And so that's, there's going to be some announcements that are going to be made now in December in terms of what that actually looks like going forward. But ultimately, we're, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for an NFT community. I come back to that. And I think that's one of the coolest things about the story and why I ultimately want us to succeed and I want the NFT to still do well in the future is because it's an awesome Web3 story, right? So it's, it's a grassroots success story of an NFT community that came together in this decentralized manner over JPEGs and built a fucking cool company <laughs> that it was a pack. And if that can happen, what, what else can fucking happen? With so it's, you take a look at the guys on Solana, Backpack Wallet. None of these other products, they start as a product first. They get all the investments and they have NFT as this marketing mechanism. We started <laughs> as an NFT and innovated from there. So I think it tells a lot more about our adaptiveness and ability to progress in that way. What else could happen? You take over the NDC. <coughs> Not too soon. No Do you think, we'll go there at the end so we can chop it out if needed. Do you think that a team 
could do the same today? Like start with an NFT collection, nurture a community, and then grow into a product? Or has something changed? For me, I think it's extremely hard nowadays if you have to start again, because it was pretty obvious to me that we were lucky that back then, a lot of people were still making money and had some more money to actually digit. That is how we managed to actually get the base to start building something. I remember back then the collection was sold in 19 seconds. 19 seconds. People had been like lining up to actually just back as much as thinkers as possible. And people have been like trading widely tokens. So it is pretty clear like people were just trying to make money. A lot of them, honestly. A lot of them were trying to make money. And nowadays, I think it's clear like the similar PFP style NFT is not going to give you that 10x or even 100x opportunity anymore. So I think for anyone trying to make the same thing today, it's hard. It's slightly problematic because I believe you are safe. Oh, we're all safe. Some of the ways that these NFTs are used as initial sales and getting some money to then shapeshift in something else may or may not be seen as security in some jurisdictions. But I guess that the broader point is that you got to make the most of the opportunity when it's in front of you. I love that if you look at the journey from Elon Musk and actually several entrepreneurs around his age group, they all made a shit ton of money back in the day building like shitty websites for people. It's like, hey, the internet just started. Everyone needs a website and they just built something. Is it groundbreaking? No. Is it yours and truly unique? Probably not either. But there was money to be made and then you use each one of those smaller wins to leverage your way into something bigger and truly unique. So I guess that there's a message there. You've got the collection, you've got the wallet, and we'll leave the open question, what comes next? Jonathan, I think that we've figured out that the dialogue of the conversation is you can jump in at any time and say whatever. Don't wait for answers. Don't wait for me. Just jump in whenever. I, I think I saw Edward trying to put his hand up or high five you. I don't know what he was trying to do, but it was kind of cute. Whatever. Cool. So uh, is it about what's next? Is that the question? Do to... If you want to say something, if not, I can keep going. I was actually remembering how in Vietnam, you guys were very strategic and kudos to that. This ought to be an example of what strategic marketing looks like. You had a nice selection of tinkers. So you would oh. give the phone to people and you would ask them to choose one. And I personally quite enjoyed psychoanalyzing people on which traits on the NFT, which very fucking clearly does not look anything like them, which traits they would use to find a connection. I was like, oh, this one has glasses. This one has a pipe. This one is black, whatever. And you gave tinkers to a lot of people, even if they already had one, which is interesting because some people are tight. And they only give away NFTs if they don't have one. So you're very generous. You were actually quite successful in getting a lot of uh, prominent community members to update their PFPs. Did Ilya change his recently? I can't recall. No, Ilya's is, I think he's about Cafe Cartel. And I think that's, they've been also doing that. Oh, okay. He's on that, on that NFT front. Yeah. I think, yeah, for us, it was myself and Henry obviously have quite a number of tinkers. And ideally, I think early on in the near days, I think ASAC actually did a great job of getting people to rep their tinkers and do things there. And I think while we've, we were very much focused on Mewtwo, what I, from the latter part of October 2022 and coming back into 
kind of where, where we were one of the only few NFTs that had survived this, this bear markets, knowing that there's still a bull, bull market coming through to, to try and get a lot of the influential people to start ripping Tinker PFPs. To, it's just a signal for us to say, hey guys, we started on the NFT, we've created some value here, just to support good people doing cool things, right? Like it was as simple as that. And we managed to get a lot of, a lot of the guys from the foundation, a lot of the guys from the Eastern Bloc, all the different sects and things like that. We're just trying to be this kind of builder, this builder project that's not trying to play too much into the politics of side of things, create value, get trust through action. And I think that it's been really cool to see a lot of, a lot of people in the community now adopting the PFD. And I think as we go into this markets and as the wide does well, I think it continues to do well. You almost convinced me to change it right it's now. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not going to try to push it Yeah. Next time I go to, <laughs> which city are you in? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I actually did write down a question. It, let's make it the last one How about NFTs. We can come back to it later, but how are NTUs? Sounds like an SDI. The brand big leaders. More. more about me. They have the NFT. <laughs> Never. Okay. Yeah. How are the tinkerers different from ASAC? We are very tech driven and product oriented. I think that's a fundamental difference. And Boris, maybe there are a little, little bit. I'm, I'm not sure if you're like familiar with the Solana NFT. Okay. But yeah, they were like free. I see them almost a little bit like D gods on, on, on Solana, but D gods obviously are doing a lot more better, but yeah, they are more marketing hype driven with certain products. It's not like they don't have any technical capabilities at all. They do have it, but that's not their major point. But for us, on the other hand, we focus a lot more on delivery products. We don't really intentionally generate that much hype. I was going to say, let's come adding on to that. ASAC and Scalings, two early NFT communities that were like alpha, were, were very good at like marketing tactics and creating hype and buzz. And they were good at branding and they're good at marketing. Like I give that to them. And they created those kind of communities that people found valuable and willing to buy and hold those NFTs. That wasn't our play. Our play was utility NFT. It was like, hey, we're going to build products. I'm going to try and tangibly give value back to holders that are that care about that have that, that have that as the, the kind of most high core value, which was, I was, was less about the branding, the marketing, the buzz, and more about the kind of true value that would be created. I think it's really important to be able to tease out those different types of NFTs, especially from the people that are like deep in that community, because that was a struggle that we had with the misfits as well. Be like, oh, kudos to these people being able to build strong marketing engines and, and brands. But we're not really that kind of community. Like even when I was doing like videos on YouTube and there was like legitimate alpha to share, it's still not the same. It's not the pumpy alpha. It's not the, yeah. There was something interesting because Misfits was very early. We were the very first neuronauts came like a couple of weeks later, I think. Most of our holders were very passive, like literally people that were building an ecosystem, like they bought one and then they went back to build. And Maybe I'm getting old, but that was the community that I identified with. Like they know that I'm doing work and I know that they're doing work and we happen to all own the same NFT. I knew that their life income didn't depend on my fucking NFT. It was more like something that bonded us together. And even if you look at the way I just made this connection now, 
unconsciously. Even if you look at the way that I'm doing the shard dogs, it's the same. Like the shard dog deliberately, explicitly do not have a financial value, but I've been issuing them since March to timestamp people building on Nier. So it's more about creating those bonds with people, something that you can look back on and remember on. I think there's a role for everything. I'm obviously a big fan of utility uh, stuff as someone who's always had me of a, of a taste for DeFi, but. I remember like when I went first we did the Neo NFT landscape and Misfits being the OG. I consider Misfits the OG NFT, OG, OG. It was like, the, you had created it. It was a lot of the early community. I didn't really have much of the marketing buzz hype, but you guys were actually like a top NFT. I remember uh, of my NFT portfolio, I remember treating my Misfits as prized possessions there alongside my skellies. Big ups to that. an idea. Misfits were back in the day, what Neat was a couple of weeks ago. No one knows what the fuck it is. And honestly, no one cares, but it launched. It was the first one on Nier. It has happened in all the blockchains and people really went for it. They just supported something new happening on the blockchain. Of course, it helped that high profile people were doing it, talking about it, but we were always very clear that it's not something that you speculate on. Even something like Neko, if it goes up in value, great. It's a fucking coin. You can sell it and whatever, buy a new pair of jeans. For the message should never be buy Neko because it's a great investment. Mm. I think that A, it's irresponsible to say that. B, you have to be fucking stupid to believe it. Don't take advantage of people that may legitimately place their trust in you or be financially desperate to put their money in a dog coin or, or, or pussy coin or whatever it be. So anyway, yeah, NFTs, whew, trip down memory lane. <laughs> now I just have one final question, which is important. Why did NTU, the university and the NFT collection, not anything else? How did you guys decide to build on Nier? Because this was like pretty early on. Did you consider any other blockchains? I know that Jonathan mentioned the ETH 2.0 delivered. Pretty compelling argument, if you ask me. But I'm wondering what the situation was in Malaysia at the time. Yeah, so I'm going to continue the unfinished story. Just <laughs> like how we started NTU. So basically, like after I quit a company, I started looking into things, then Twitter. Then from Twitter, I started looking into cryptos. And then it wasn't DeFi that actually made me interested. It's about the PFP, the monkey PFP that sort of got me hooked into the entire ecosystem because at least back in the day, it feels to me like, like I say, I think like a lot of people is just trying to make money, but also during the same time, you can feel the cult. Like people are like almost blindly believing in certain things. And that sort of spirit is actually pretty, to me, like pretty interesting. And you almost get attracted to it. So when I see so many people believing that, I also want to look into what's so special about this PFP. But I didn't start off with Ethereum. I was a broke, jobless person in Malaysia. I couldn't afford any expensive monkey PFP. So the poor chain Solana was the go. I actually got a bottle of this Solana. I minted 2D gods, 2D gods at three Solana. Back in the day, Solana was at $200. And I remember that day I woke up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. When the button is on, I just clicked on keep on clicking minting. Unfortunately, I become one of the stupid people you mentioned just now because I genuinely believe I can make money from that. Honestly, I genuinely believe like 
this motherfucker is going to make it. Vegans is definitely going to make it because they're like so creative and whatsoever. But when I got deeper into the NFT market or like community, you start following people. But just for context, I actually have no idea how much decots are worth, were worth, or what happened to your investment. Maybe. I make it like I paper handled a little bit. So the mean price was Fini, Chris Solana. Right after mean, it was 15 Solana. Right after mean, like. So that is 5x. So I saw one of them. I paper handled one of them, one of them. Because I still believe in the community. I love the community. Love the community. I, I also love the money a little bit. So I, Yeah, I, I love the community. I just hate communists. Give me my fucking cash. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I kept one. So the other one I saw at 50 Solana. Um, then I think, I, I haven't followed them since a while, but back in that, during the peak, they went up to 400 Solana, I believe. From He's crazy. 400 Solana. Yeah. That's wild. It is. There were the guys sitting on a lot of the early kind of NFT metas, like a lot of the things that NFT collections were doing from launch pads to how they were get, creating excitement and hype around the community. They were leading the way around that. I don't know, it's just they bridged over from Solana to other chains and now coming back and doing all sorts of other things. I'm not sure what's happening there. Um, I think but... they're doing pretty good. <laughs> I mean, in terms of like price action, I think they're still pretty good. And one thing I must mention, like I got hooked into D-Gods because of one very interesting concept that they introduced. That is called PHBT. Sounds more like SDI actually. But it stands for Paper Hand Beach Tax. It stands for Paper Hand Beach Tax. Have you heard it? Maybe I thought about it myself, but no. <laughs> what it does basically is like when you, if you sell your D-Gods under the last floor price, so say the last time you bought it at 7 Solana, if you sold it under 7 Solana, you have to pay a 33%, 33.3% tax. And 33.3 is almost like a symbol for D-Gods. So every of the big D-God fans, they're going to have this 33.3 after their name. Uh, so that's like super interesting concept and it's so easy to spread. Definitely a cult, but I like the incentives, exploration. Maybe 33.3 was an arbitrary number, but it does make sense to charge people something if they paper hand. But <laughs> Marketing is always like years ahead of other science, although social science is a catching up, behavioral science and all that stuff. But I remember when I was a kid, summer camp, the first thing that you do when you arrive, they assign you into groups by age, etc. And as a group, you pick a name and then you paint a flag. And mm. then very quickly, it's fucking Lord of the Flies. And you become very tribal and you develop a very strong sense of identity with your group. Exactly. Because you're all part of the, whatever, the Cherokinos or something. Right. And to put a flag where a kid rolled over it. And uh, you can start doing all sorts of ceremonies. I remember there was like this little totem thingy that was given to the kid that would clean the most and help the most. Which if you think about it, is like a shit reward. And it did shape incentive. I was cleaning after everyone's shit and I earned a totem and I'd go home and be like, look, mom, I've got this piece of shit wood. And she's like, oh, great. I think that there's many lessons there on things that may not at face value make sense. But when you look at like the system as a whole, it does make sense. So my, like, so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I like, 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 ha, okay. <laughs> rock, scissor, paper. Okay. I got it. 
But like, I think there are like two components that you mentioned just, just now. Like, I think the first one is you got to like bind all these people, this group of people with a common interest. Like in your case, I think that's a, a totem or whatever. And in, in terms of NFT, it's pretty clear. Everyone wants a higher pro, pro price so they can make money. And the second thing is you need to give them the sense of belonging. So something that is shared between them, be it a symbol or traits or some things. Like NFT, it can be a symbol, it can be an NFT itself. For your case, it can be a flag or something. Basically, you want to make sure like people know we belong to the same group and we have common benefits. So that's what drives them pretty easy. Okay. The problem with NFTs and in general is that if the sense of belonging is financial, it's not really, it's physically not possible to maintain. So your identity must be something else. You can be driven by the pursuit of happiness which some motherfuckers wrote into the constitution like 900 years ago. But you get, that's why most NFTs communities collapsed because the sense of identity was making money, but everybody was losing money. True. But when it comes to like sense of belongings, I was like, it's more about the PFP. So change your PFP. I see you. I know you're one of my kind. And then, but yeah, the, the pursuit okay. of so bodies, definitely. For a long time, very long time, I said that marketing DAO, creative stuff and all this shitty near branded accounts we had on Twitter, near watcher, near Wells, near, near P PDF, whatever. It always lacked branding. It's just too generic. And so that's one like stream of consciousness. One, we need to have a stronger sense of affiliation. So I was thinking. We also need more competition in the ecosystem. There may be one or more groups that we may personally don't like what they're doing or how they're performing. So more competition would be the healthy way to heal the ecosystem instead of bashing each other with rocks. Let's just have more groups trying more things. So I think that if we combine these, what about we create the House of Dragons and we encourage all these groups to either pick an existing collection and fucking take it over or create their own to take ownership, personal responsibility, and to be fucking proud of their work and to go out there and see which house builds most shit and onboards more people. And at the end of one year, fuck it, give them one million a year, give them hand jobs. I don't give a fuck, but let's make it fun. Let's make it a sense of belonging. Let's give people the space to group build and then battle it out, but in a civilized way. Are you guys in? I think that's a pretty interesting concept, actually. Like, especially introducing that competition with real incentive. I definitely think you can change, change something. You've mm. got the, the NTU's deceased people. I've got the mystic motherfuckers. I reckon we can get a few of <laughs> So this, this is the origin of the House of Dragons. During which episode is this? 59, I believe. Now, final note before we get into the serious part. Wait, wait. The real OGs of NFTs are the near punks, but like the real near punks, the, yeah. the collection on Paras is called one of a kind. Those are the near punks made out of like little, the pixels are like little near logos. And the artist was Montsartre or something like that. Those were the real OGs. That was my previous PFP. And yeah, he's gone. But in a way, it's like Satoshi. 
I feel like the fact that he's gone and that the collection lives by itself almost makes it more valuable. I'm actually low-key probably going to go and scoop as many as I can get before I release this podcast. Because that is real OG shit. Um, I thought, what's the floor price now? <laughs> we may not want to timestamp that because I'll be accused of like inside dealing and be demoted from my transparency commission position. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm so transparent, you can see through me. <laughs> anyway, I really enjoyed that NFT talk. And I think the House of Dragons is going to happen. Mostly because we need a way to battle things out. But let's get to the modern meteor days. So we know that you passed on Big Brain's original suggestion. What? When did the idea enter the scene again? So it was, we passed, like you say, we passed out that idea. But then we still continue the conversations with different community members from NTU or from other NFT subcommittee. Then we realized what well, is indeed a big issue. And also coming from um, Solana, actually, I was used to the Phantom um, user experience. That was pretty great. But only we only had the web wallet, which is great, actually, like Solana suge- uh, like Jonathan suggested. The issue with that is sometimes you always need to redirect and then come back in fresh states. And when it comes to NFT, it's not so user-friendly. There's no transaction history. Basically, when you click the transaction history, it brings you to near Explorer, which is unreadable. So we also noticed that although web wallet is great, there are a lot of room for improvements. And that's when we started to reconsider that again. Adding on to that, one of our key, key only features was the ability to aggregate all the, the, the floor prices. So in your wallet, in your retail mm-hmm. wallet, you'll be able to see the total floor price or the total value of kind of the NFTs you want. And so we knew early on, just because we were an NFT collection that it did do wallets, getting our first users would not be, it wouldn't be a cold start, right? Would have the support of kind of the, the NFT ecosystem. So what feature could we release that kind of was pro that? And I guess we sat down with the applied for yeah, foundation grants. Fortunately, they accepted that. They, we got a grant to get kickstarted, launched an MVP of the product. I think well, the first live version of October. So I think it was about six months after the NFT collection. It was pretty much of a, a very hack job, kind of quick wallets, but I think to the point of our strategy, it was like launch something, kind of iterate and build and, and go from there. And it's, when I think about it, it's quite crazy. I've only been live, what, a year and a half? <laughs> so it's a lot has happened. We launched in October, me and Edward met for the first time there in September in Lisbon. We started fundraising there as well. That's when we started the conversations around that. Started to get early angel checks. Then the whole wallet transition thing played out and it was mainly a wallet where there was who's maintaining that, what's happening, was able to be facilitated on, facilitated into that kind of, I think it was March this year. But a lot's really happened from us just being adapters to taking the opportunity to, to be builders in that space. And, and we knew that Nia was transferring the wallet, the wallet that were discontinued or sunsetting the original wallet. We knew that it wasn't going to happen. We didn't know much about, we, we knew my Nia wallet was taken over by another team. We didn't know the nature of it or what was happening there. But we knew that it was a relatively limited competitive landscape. And here was a great chain with good upside. And we had an, an early community. It just made the most sense. That was the place that we could create value. It's interesting to me that you guys were, for lack of a better word in this context, outsiders. Because for instance, I recall early days having meetings with people. And the alpha was, yeah, my near wallet, the near wallet is going to be spun out. 
It's going to be a separate company. It's going to be the same team. It's just going to be spun out in the same way that Aurora got spun out and that, you know, Pagoda and Calimero. Calimero didn't exist at the time. But anyway, if I had been you at the time, I would have been like, I am not going to compete against the same team, but now a separate company that becomes for profit, whatever the case may be. I don't know the exact details, but as we know now, things change all the time. And once again, it just comes back to, it is so early on that we shouldn't have to take people's word for it. And we shouldn't have to give up on our own ideas or vision because somebody else says they're going to do something. I think it's like early enough where it's fair play for everyone. And my near wallet was short lived. And if I recall correctly, it was eventually handed over to you guys anyway. So you could say that there was definitely like, Hey, you guys are coming into this competitive landscape with the original team that built this was going to get this like starting advantage. So we're going to spin up this and they were going to afford all the users and <clears throat> there would be no way for, like free and open competition. And that's what we, where we came and I wrote to be thread about it and post about it when the way that even that transition was happening, we didn't feel it was actually fair in the ethos of fair decentralization. We knew that the near wanted to, near wanted to kind of centralize these core kind of infrastructure goods, but the way that happened, we didn't really believe was in the best way. And so when we, they were planning to just offboard all the near users straight into my near one, right? <laughs> it wasn't going to be a decision. It was going to happen quite soon. It was just like, we're like pushing it in and we're like, guys, do you want there to be a competitor like landscape of wallets? Because if you, if that's the, that's the way that you guys were going to go about it, you're going to disincentivize all one on one teams because it's going to be like a fixed, um, outcome, right? And fortunately, what I think happened there was they slowed down that process and they said, okay, cool. Well, th- we're not going to just like offboard all these users directly into kind of my new wallets and we'll try and, uh, we'll delay it. We'll make it a bit more fair. And they also started asking more questions about the relationship and the team that was maintaining it and what that looked like. And I, and, and then I think what ended up coming was that it probably wasn't such a good job, pretty expensive. Okay. What are we going to do with this public good now? Cause essentially we sunset in the original wallet and this thing needs to be maintained. You don't necessarily want this wallet to be innovative, to have massive innovation, but we expect it to be an ecosystem wallet. And that's where I, I think it was made sense for us as a wallet team to come alongside and say, guys, look, we're willing to maintain this wallet that it is usable. It's and essentially pulled up Meteor inside. The opposite end of the spectrum is also true. In the same way that you shouldn't hold back your idea or your vision because somebody else says that they're going to do it. It's very hard when you already have something that kind of works and that it may actually be working too well, but then you are told or you feel like you should hold back your own efforts to let other people rise up. And I feel like that's a tension that we have in the near ecosystem. There's a lot of things that people either don't take ownership or don't folk go all in because they don't want to be seen to be winning too hard. And then we've got other shit where no one is doing it because they think somebody else is doing it. So it's, Mm. this is why the new era, the Ilya era, the dragon era, the era of the dragons is so important because it allegedly marks a shift towards founders. Now, whether that's true or whether it's slogan, we'll find out. But it is such a stark difference between having a service provider or a consultant getting a contract. Dude, mm-hmm. I, like I don't like. I get diarrhea thinking of how much money the new foundation must have paid to maintain Astro Dow and their wallet and all this fucking shit that has already been deprecated. Yeah, like Meanwhile, that. we've got community hackers 
eating ramen and asking for NFTs, building entire wallets. <laughs> and that's when you realize we want to have the founders. We want to have that startup culture where I'm not invoicing you by the hour to rewrite some shitty documentation, but we grow together. And sure, there needs to be support in many ways, but it's a very different relationship. I'm glad that you guys are still around. <laughs> Thanks. And I really like what you say just now because it's, it's almost like founders are the group of person who look, gather resources, mines, capitals, and build something up. And on the other hand, like you say, they're like consultant type of um, people. They're great, but they, I hate to say this, but they generally lack certain practical spirits. And they would sometimes even judge with their own past experience in corporate and whatsoever and thought this is going to work well because it worked well in big company. But crypto, the entire crypto, I think there's at least two very unique characteristics. The first one is it shift really quickly in terms of like technology, narrative and whatsoever. That makes corporate, I feel like corporate consultant type of people getting a little bit unused to it. And the second thing is it is heavily community-based. A lot of things are built ground up instead of top down. And when it comes into this ground up approach, I think the same thing, like consultant type of people, they generally undervalue the impact of having a strong community to continuously support you, giving you feedback and even becomes your marketing people. So provided that two reasons, I really want to say just now, founders are the group of people who is closer to the audience, the product, to the market, and they just fit a little bit better into current crypto state. I'm not like, I'm not saying like consultant people will never work, but at current state of crypto, I think we need more strong founders who can build things from nothing. That's why the founder label has so many connotations to it, because it needs to represent ownership. If like a builder or a dev, it doesn't quite strike it. Because at the moment, if you look at the corporate world, and if you look at crypto, especially things like governance, to be honest, corporates are winning. They've got processes for everything, and corporations are born and they die and they create a lot of value. Governance, people are trying to figure out how to fucking version control a document. We are lacking in some ways where the corporates may say, oh, this is really novel. But what is different is, and this is where founders enter the picture. When you ask the definition of success, a corporate will tell you, contract begins day A, we deliver whatever the fuck you asked me, by the way, you give me the wrong parameters, it's your fucking problem. Contract ends day B. Whether it works or not, I don't give a fuck. And they will charge you as much as you're physically willing to pay. And they've been milking this foundation because it's all magic money and piece of shit tokens that we just mint out of thin air. So that is a very dangerous relationship because you need to have someone within that knows what they're asking for, that knows what they're contracting, etc. But the founders, the definition of success is actually not financial or at least not tier one financial. Maybe like tier five financial if the ecosystem grows and we get users and we get transactions and brand recognition and a hundred other people like myself doing the same thing, then maybe there's money. And that's what we need right now. And I've seen Ilya's frustration when people ask him questions and his answer is, 
in a variety of words, but always the same, like, why don't you do it? The frustration right now is where do we get the founders who will start bitching and charging for bitching and will just ship? And the challenge we have now is that founders also need money and the pendulum always swings too far. We were way too, there was some fucking insane spending at different eras. And now we're progressively cutting basically everything. And it's hard to ascertain what things have merit and which ones don't. But I think that throwing the word founder out there and hoping that people understand what it means is a good way to recalibrate. I don't know. I really love what you say just now, like the definition of success. And from what I said, I think I'm a little bit more pessimistic. That's what Jonathan always say about me. But I think at the current state of near, I think it's a little bit hard for us to really attract any sort of like top tier funds. Given the entire, I think, narrative about crypto right now, which is generally a little bit more towards negative. And even this entire crypto, Near is probably like top 34 or like top 40 in terms of like market capital. If you go to coin market cap today, I think I just checked today, probably 34 or something. So the attention, the resources, and the talents that Near is going to get is going to be so little. And the majority of them is going to go to probably like Ethereum or maybe Solana, Bitcoin, whatsoever. The only way we can get founders is true founders. So I really hope to see one day the ecosystem stop powering and powering more founders. Like for example, I think through the regional hub and empowering successful founders to spread the words and identify the talents. I think that is one good thing that founders generally are quit with because otherwise they cannot be a successful founder. They can't do everything themselves. The founder generally can identify good talents and you need to empower them, give them resources, help them to talents into the ecosystem. This is weird gaps of silence to enable Jonathan to jump in, but I'll edit those out. It's not, people won't be able to feel the sexual tension, I promise. See, <laughs> this founders. Nothing more to rinse and repeat there. I think you guys are Yeah, this is getting pretty philosophical. Jonathan is a pragmatic one. There's founders, but then there's product. And I think that it's almost like the bait. Product thinking gets a certain kind of people excited and it attracts them. And I think that's where the focus should be. I've been reflecting. If we had the same amount of people we've got in DC now, beating each other up around governance, we had 29 people that were like product obsessed and whose only task was to go out there and get founders, would be top 20. And I think that if the foundation said, hey, we're going to put founders and product at the same level as NTC, stop jerking off the governance. That's money in, money out. It doesn't really need 29 people. It's not fucking rocket science. Yeah. Put founders and product. Everything else can go. And I'm going to be honest, I would probably not get any more funding. I don't know, I'll have to do things elsewhere to get money. But there will be community members and communities that are just not founder or product. 
and we can reinvent ourselves and join House of Dragons and get some fucking red lines and start building some crazy products, or we can fuck off. But I think that the reality is the mediocre middle of vanishing into irrelevance doesn't help anyone. Yeah. I would say the one thing with Ilya coming in and this whole new founder approach, and we've seen it, we've seen it at the foundation way more intentionally in kind of their interactions with us and, and what they're doing and things. For the most part, I mean, there's still a lot of friction on the way there, but I'm encouraged to see the, the direction shift. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. That's music to my ears. Because there's this phenomena where usually when someone gets really good at their job, they get promoted to manager. And then they no longer get to do what they were really good at in the first place. And I remember I saw Ilya, I think it was Korea last year. This is a long time ago. And I asked him something about coding and he's talked to someone else. I haven't coded in months. And I was like, what? Our main guy's not coding. This is not good. Dude, fucking hire someone else, that impersonator, to clone yourself to go on stage. We should not, we should be mindful of the opportunity cost of using top technical talent to read horrifically drafted, poorly thought out documents at the NDC. That's just a bad use of time. So yeah, sometimes I get excited about near Ilya at the foundation and I guess elevating that bureaucracy to be more product and founder centric. But there's also the risk that a person that was originally technically in product to be, you know, entangled into more and more bureaucracy himself and I am bullish. I'm actually bullish. Edward, how are you feeling? <laughs> you're muted. Edward, you're muted. <laughs> okay, so I joined the conversation too much that I didn't notice. Um, no, you were farting and you muted yourself. That's the right thing to do. <laughs> okay, but listen, sir. Like I, I mentioned, I'm a, a developer myself. And even to today, I still write a lot of codes and it's always like a balancing act between what, where I want to invest my time on. As a founder, there's so many things you can do. You can go out and look for talents. You can do a lot of interviews. I used to do more than hundred interviews, maybe not hundred, but 60 to hundred in a month. I basically two to three interviews, but the quick one, five, 10 minute pre-filter in one month, like for around one to two months, I remember I went through at least two to 300 resumes in like that two months itself. So first, like you can put times into identifying talents and then get them into the team. Secondly, you can write codes. I still do that today. I just did it actually. And then you need to do some sort of like partnerships because people sometimes value you. They want to see you because of probably when it comes to understanding the real scenarios or you can make the decision whatsoever. But generally when it comes to partnerships, often Founders need to get involved, then technical documentations, support issues. There are thousands of different ways. You can just waste your time. And it's like extremely hard to balance the time. So coming back to the near ecosystem, I think like I'm bullish as well. Like it is, it probably worth more for Elias to put time into something that's more high level and more macro instead of writing codes because at that level at the current ecosystem, I'm pretty sure to get the talents that has similar level programming capabilities like team, still can cost a lot, but no one, you probably won't be able to spend any money 
to find somebody else to do whatever Elias is doing right now. It comes to the scarcity of the resource. I think you need to do what you're best at. Like for instance, I remember the very early day in year. It was good because it was very technical. It was very key. It was very purists. Dude, we ate shit when everything else was pumping. And people were still building committed to that vision. And even if you look at the chain abstraction now, I guess it's very technical because we're still understanding the concepts. That narrative should progressively be more about product. At some point, no one, it's ironic, the point of chain abstraction is no one should give a fuck how it works. We should be able to start selling like how it looks like and how you can implement it. I think Ref started doing a really good Twitter thread around that. But my point was that we attempted to hire a marketing lady at the foundation back in the day. And there is a hilarious shit fight on the governance forum where the engineers are like, what the fuck are you talking about? She was talking about like the brand identity and the spirit and the soul. And she said that the rainbow was gay. And everybody was like, maybe talk about what we're coding. And she didn't understand the code. So I guess it, it's a very special skill to be able to take something technical, make it understandable, identify your audiences. Look, to be honest, I think CMO Jack is doing a great job. He may or may not have been instructed to stop talking to me, but I was getting some good alpha and maybe it was not very good at keeping it to myself, but I think he's done a great job. There's been a very marked shift in Nier since NearCon last year till now. Even if you look at subtle things like Nier DA, it's a brand. Now we have something that has a presence next to something like Celestia. So I think that there's a very good team around Ilya and uh, I hope that he's able to delegate most things into some coding. We need this shit to be going to, I don't know, maybe he's got a product idea. Who knows? Whatever you say, just now, just minded me on what happens a couple of months back before NeoCon. People have been talking about boss. People on Neo has been talking about boss. But I had, I struggled so much because we were also trying to raise some, some funds as well. So I generally talked to different people, some partners, some VCs and whatsoever. So the first thing, or not the first thing, but the common questions from them is generally like, what is boss about? Because BOSS was such a huge thing that BOSS, B-O-S, everywhere when Neo is there. But to be honest, even myself, I remember that what at least probably three to four times that I tell people BOSS is just decentralized front end, which today is proven wrong. But back in the days, that is the only way me as a developer could understand and comprehend it. Not to mention the people that's not technical. What the fuck is operating system? What does it do? That would be an example of, see, the podcast, I don't know, I honestly do not understand this, but the podcast is sometimes referred to by some people as being controversial, strange. I don't know what they're referring to. And sometimes I lose my shit. I'm working on my stoic self. 2024 is going to be a year of flowing peace and abundance. But sometimes you need people to speak up in respectful ways, in civilized ways, but it's not helpful to have a culture where everyone agrees and where everyone takes orders from the top down. Mm. I don't want to beat a dead horse because everyone is aware of this and we are quietly but proactively working to change it. But boss was something that no one fucking understood and everyone pretended like it wasn't a problem. 
the engineers didn't realize it because they understand it. And the people that were meant to sell it, dude, I cannot explain the obsession that foundation had with boss. Like we were explicitly told not to fund exactly. anything through the marketing DAO that wasn't boss. And I was like, no one knows what boss is. Okay, fair enough. It may have been a marketing failure. Hence, we have to fund people to go and explain it. But then you talk to builders and they're like, I'm not building on boss. Am I still part of this ecosystem? There were communications issues there that should not have lasted 10 months. And I'm excited to see that boss is now. It's a little vertical. I low-key favor it being rebranded to Neo.js. I think it's a little bit more descriptive of how it fits within the larger picture. But that's up to the developers to decide. It's almost, this is just my cousin. I'm not sure whether this is correct or not. But I'm only starting to understand what boss is after Neocon. I'm going to be a little bit nerdy here. But um, basically what operating thing system does is it connects the hardware to the software. Basically different, different components in the system and make them work together. And now when you put boss into pictures, that is what Neo is actually doing. So when this different part of things, the DA layer, the first finality layer, we have the front end, the centralized front end, we have the account aggregations. These different small parts connecting different modules and different layer one, layer two, different blockchains together and makes them work seamlessly. Now I can agree this kind of sounds a little bit like operating system. Back three months ago, it is just decentralized front end, but now it's starting to make sense. I just hate the fact that it takes them so long to tell us, hey guys, we're working on DA. This is what it's meant to be. I felt, man, we are, we're like one of the biggest wallets on here, but we don't know what the fuck you guys doing. <laughs> and then we have been meeting people, delivering the wrong message, boss is decentralized. All this time, now I feel bad. I have to go back to one of my friends that I've talked to from Solana, Ethereum, and tell them, sorry, I was wrong about boss. So here's what boss about. Here's a few links about near column. Feel free to go have a look. Yeah, it's just a mess, honestly. Now that you mentioned that, I'm pretty sure because I recorded the podcast with Kendall at the Paras office, and I told you about data availability on Near and the chain abstraction. It was like the first time that Kendall spoke about it, like openly. Before that, I read it on like some secluded blog post from somewhere, Ignas DeFi. And you were like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, the fuck? Someone's lying to me here. What's going on? Now, this is going to be an introspective question. How much of those communication challenges do you think can be attributed to a very messy, flustered community where people just enjoy talking and arguing about mundane shit that doesn't really make any difference or makes any sense? And how much does it have to be that perhaps there is an isolation between the technical component and, and that should be pushed out? Jordan said, this is your question. I'm not answering what you mean. No, it would go, bro. That's, you can always find best, best of the technical isolation part of that. The way, the way that I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to have a good response to that one. I think that there's a lot of pitching on unnecessary things in the community and a lot of like politics. And, and I think from our side, 
it would have been like the only guys that we really engaged with, like throughout building the wallet, to be honest, like that were really like coming alongside us and supporting us was like the band Cameron, Shot, those guys. Um, they were a proxy to like the rest of the ecosystem. And so, and, and this was, if it wasn't for them, I, don't, I think we would have also been quite in the dark and, and unaware of a lot of things. And so we're grateful to them and, and they helped us alter our lives the noise uh, and now it's been interesting to look the guys from the foundation have started to reach out to us directly we have in chats they're asking us to present things we're involved in a little discussions and groups and things like that so i think finally can wait to be recognized and those information kind of channels to, to get a little bit more streamlined that took a long time and it was pretty ineffective and i think that there's still a lot of noise and i think that's just the nature of us to play out thank you for giving cameron and shock a shout out. Well, Cameron has his ways and some people may not like him, but I do think that he deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. Especially for keeping you guys in the loop because he also recruited, like single-handedly recruited and basically seeded here wallet. And we could go down a list of products where he has put his personal reputation and connections in the line to onboard the Jutsu team. I don't think many people realize yet, like what Jutsu is building, but it's extremely powerful and it should be like a big leap forward. And there's a few examples like that, that perhaps this is where some of the conversations that get out of control go. Why are we, or how could we benchmark different communities or different value created? Because we've got a handful of ecosystems showing specific results, Vietnam, Korea, US, Mexico with Ola. And you can actually see how much money it costed, the structure that they have. It's not decentralized chaos on a monthly grant proposal. There's more planning and there's more objectives. So I think that those are some of the questions that we're trying to reconcile. Like how can we make use of the decentralized funding, but get results? Because at the moment, most of the results are, yeah. I didn't like that though. The question just asked because Sinelet actually recently talking to Neo Foundation about forming the near Malaysia hub and it is going to be happen really soon. And so in the process of talking to NF, I've actually just came to realize a few issues that is slowly being resolved now, or at least people are in progress resolving that is the data, like even we had so many proposal approved, the data is extremely unorganized and in a way that we don't even have any metrics, any collected data or metrics of, for example, ROI, let's say, generally, for example, averagely, we spend $2 on regional hub to get a new user. Let's say we don't have numbers like this. We also don't have numbers like averagely, how much does the hub spend to achieve certain things? Because even the goal is not defined, the KPI is not defined, which I think is fine because each of the different countries and regions, they all have their own strengths and weaknesses. Like for example, I think in Malaysia, we have got really cheap, let, let's not use cheap, let's use affordable <laughs> technical talents and the quality is not too low, but maybe in US it's not the same. It's high quality, but it is also pretty expensive. Each of these regions have their own strengths and weaknesses. So to define a unified KPI is unfair. But even so, we need to make sure all of the proposal that we approve 
has some sort of KPI that's kept somewhere that when we need to refer back, okay, you're Malaysia. I think Malaysia is pretty similar, pretty close to Bangkok. Let's look at the thing that was done in Bangkok. So this is the event. We spent $2,000. We onboarded, say, 500 users. How many of them turn out to be developers? If we have something like this, a unified database, it would be a lot more easier when it comes to um, determining whether or not we want to approve a proposal. But right now, since we're talking about, we're talking to NF about the Malaysia Hub, they sort of tended to make us become like an environment to start gathering some of the numbers. How much funds we're spending? How many? In fact, we're actually starting to define these numbers for them. And I think this is going to be hopefully a good start. But we're also not in any position to start saying like, this is a good process of determining the success of a hub and whether or not we're going to carry it forward. This is why I have always chosen to be on the entrepreneur builder side, thrive within chaos, but also have enough freedom to prove your point. And I don't know whether as we iterate on this grant, we may have another instance of top-down requirement for ROI. Look, it's a very early stage ecosystem. I don't know where these metrics come from, but we should be able to ask what is the mind share of near in Malaysia? Because everywhere that I travel, people tell me, Sui is going balls deep, Aptos, Solana. Like, sure, Hackathon was very expensive and you only got 30 devs, but you do things that don't scale initially. And if we never have name recognition and we never have people in the community that people trust, like, there's like a snowball that I've seen over time. Like you have to start somewhere. I actually really shout out to the DevHub. They put a lot of resources into Hackbox and near campus. So that could be like a really good way to kickstart some things, at least with universities. But yeah, I'm glad to hear that there's progress in near Malaysia. What about South Africa? Uh -huh. I was going to say, I like, the, I like their approach. I think what they said is, they want founders to be involved in these hubs or people that have demonstrated kind of excellence or success in some sense. So I think Edward's going to do something interesting in Malaysia. And he said that, as he mentioned, I think Malaysia, Malaysia has some strategic benefits as a location outside. In Cape Town, a lot of the BC that comes into Africa, a lot of the tech BC startups are specifically in Cape Town. That's where I'm from as well. The only activity I see here is like Kudano and ICP. They've got clubs and activities and things. Yeah, there's the, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for it. And there's a lot of appetite for it in South Africa. In Africa, it's kind of Nigeria and South Africa that have, I think the most blockchain kind of Bitcoin cryptocurrency interest. But yeah, we'll see how things go with Edward's side. And if there's room and scope for something to be done in Africa, if you can listen out. Okay. I, I got tier two now. So for the house of dragons. Not only do we group in tribes with NFTs and we can come up with songs and whatever, but what if different houses specialize in different things? Because you could have a house of the technical raw talent and they could be a very creative, like idea, design thinking house, and they could almost like trade or collaborate, like, hey, we've got all these MVPs. Like, we can build them because there's a lot of technical talent here. Maybe it's like an earlier startup culture. Maybe it's not as like sparky in ideas. 
and maybe in other cultures, it's just too expensive to build an MVP. This is where I get excited around, okay, let's identify everyone, structure it so that they can work, but collaborate. Because I had the same conversation with Ricky. Ricky was like, it's easy for us to hire people. No one is an expert in blockchain. They are good at screening people and then they just learn and they pair them up with people that know. And it's just a very large, young country, which is the complete opposite from some countries in the West. So House of Dev Dragons. It's going to be in Southeast Asia, sir. Malaysia, Indonesia. We got a lot of cheap, sorry, affordable talents. That's twice <laughs> now. That's and you need to get them all to listen to the podcast while they work. Now, what a few questions about the future of wallets on the earth. First, do you guys get any referral or commission or is there like any business model around the swaps or what's the landscape for wallets in that regard? Maybe you can take this. Do you want it? Yeah. At the moment, yeah, we haven't been too concerned on the business model just because I think the most important thing for us is to just essentially provide a, a good user experience and, and, and early on get trust and show that we can pro provide that value to users. I, I was going to say, when it comes into the business model, we do have something planned next year, which is more of a savings related product that simplifies DeFi and maybe Edward can release some offer on that. What was the second part of your question? It was, was something just... I am good at stacking a lot of questions, but I'm not sure if this one had a second part. Or... Oh yeah, swaps. Yeah. It was, wasn't just the business model swaps. It was, it was... Oh, if there was like any commission or referral on the swaps at the moment. When it comes to the referral side of things, that, that is actually running. And I think because we're looking to have essentially one as our smart contract accounts, we are, we're hoping to next year build in uh, kind of a referral model that where we have, whether it be users, whether it be media partners, whether it be kind of web 2.5 applications where we can easily attribute referral partners and give them an ongoing lifetime perpetual revenue share in the value generated from users going forward. Even though we don't have business models established today, it might take time. It's definitely something that we want to be really great about and leverage as much as possible. Because I have been teased, edged with a MetaMask airdrop for seven years now. And at some point I was like, hey guys, I think there's not going to be any fucking MetaMask airdrop. And I asked, like, it's a wallet. Like, to me, it was just like infrastructure. And somebody was like, now, nah, mate, they're making so much money from like swaps. And there must be some sort of referral commission there. But anyway, I guess we wouldn't have to go into it. And I was like, obviously, so MetaMask is making that money now. Phantom's done some crazy volume with cross chain swaps. I hope something now that they've just released. Those are the obvious business models. Try and put a little bit of calm on a swap or some of these more basic DeFi. Um, you know, sort of functions, which is not really the, the thing that we want to do is like when we actually help maximize convenience in a creative way, maximize value that would be maybe more, less simplistic or complex in nature, then that's where we feel like we can start taking a little bit more cuts and we have a bit more, the more strategic position. And coming back to the pre-token side of things, we've, this is alpha now, we haven't really formally announced anything, released Meteor Points, which is our sort of a gamification system where you subscribe to this when you join the wallet and you just, once you unlock the wallet and once you do a swap, once you do a stake, you get in certain points. And with those points, those are all on-chain as well. And with those points, you can then essentially, you know, do these, unlock these different reward packs, which then would include a range of tokens of which we've snuck in Meteor pre-token. 
And so well, that pre-token is going to be, going to be a, it will be a conversion event in the future. We will convert that into actual token. But it's a way for us to already start to get early users interested and engaged and know that they will have some future upside, even if we can't really establish the details of that early on, that users know it's going to come. The science of airdrops and like early user engagement is fascinating. I have missed out on some pretty big ones, but I also got a couple of recently. I got Joop, J-U-P, uh, from my very degenerate days in the Solana ecosystem. And I got Chainflip. I have no idea what I did with the Chainflip. That was an old wallet. But to me, there's something beautiful about not knowing it's coming and then getting like a big, massive load. Of... If you gamify it too much, I I'm doing a bunch of farming and stuff. Yeah, I get like a, whatever, 40 cents a day. I guess that it adds up over time, especially because some of these airdrops take years to come. But I don't know. I, I kind of like the surprise element. And even if it's not like super massive, I don't know. Like I'd look, for instance, if there was like a meteor airdrop that acknowledged like, hey, this motherfucker has been using these and creating a bunch of wallets and swapping since like very early days. I think it would be a combination. We still haven't finalized exactly how that's going to look, but we would definitely have a, a portion that's going to go towards like early users of the actual missions feature, which we've released that is unlocking pre-token in that way. There'll definitely be some sort of uh, coming back to NTU and some sort of event there that, that ties into your holders to get benefits in terms of pre-token. And then there's also just early users that weren't a part of holding the NFT or weren't a part of the missions, but like we can see that there were users, maybe there's a, there's a certain way that would allocate that. So I think we can, we can definitely be creative, but in the still early days. I was using KyberSwap. Dude, I was, I am really impressed with how much KyberSwap has advanced since the days when I used to use it back in 2018. I even added some liquidity. Obviously they got hacked the next day. <laughs> and I lost all my money. That was what I wanted to say. I think they got hacked. <laughs> It's, but it's amazing because you go to a new blockchain, you just swap and Kyber swap, and then you look at the route, it's doing 3% on Trader Joe's, 20% on whatever box is money. And it's just cool to, I don't know, once again, I guess I'm cheap, but it's just, there's something about optimizing. There's like little swaps everywhere that get me going. Mm. Yeah. Now I, the I next question. That goes into the DeFi product that I was going to say that Edwin's master plan. Maybe you can share some alpha. For the alpha, if it's related, build it in. If it's not, just have it as a second point. I was really curious when you mentioned earlier, like the super app concept and like building more functionality into the wallet than an original standalone wallet. So yeah, if you could expand on the alpha super wallet would be great. Edwin alluded to, I think what's interesting when you look at the web two side of things, some of the biggest opportunities are these super apps, as mentioned, go, 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 J. I enjoyed Rakuten. That's what the Japanese guy, Miki Mikitani, we chat all of them. And, and I think you realize that the whole business model is I have a massive amount of distribution. They have this product, they have this kind of financial layer, and then they just couple products and services on top of it. And what generally in the web two space is like, they have to build those services themselves or they go through integration help and it takes time and there's lags. What's really attractive for us is like being this entry point to this gateway into Web3, which is obviously it's a common narrative for wallets. Okay, the first interaction with the chain, it's a big responsibility, but it's also a massively lucrative opportunity to create a really good experience 
And at the same time, crypto's permissionless, right? We can see what's working and we can build in all these other experiences with relatively low friction or our job is aggregating and curating this, the, these experiences. It puts us in, in, a, in an ability to really be nimble and move and compete in that space. And so I think from the get-go, that's where we draw the comparison to Web 2 to perhaps and Web 3 to perhaps. We think Web 3 is this new kind of way that we're going to do finance and the way that this world is going to eventually operate in. Who's going to, who's going to participate in whether that value is created and captured? And I thought definitely top of the funnel seems to be wallets. Like you can go to the browser and some other things there. For the most part, wallets seem to be really lucrative. And that's our play from the beginning. Our whole goal is to like, just to be able to participate in that. And so we're starting on Nier. We didn't want to go multi-chain and do all these crazy things. We start, can we start to do that on Nier? Let's see what Nier is going to be doing. How do we leverage that going forward and rather stick with one blockchain? So that's the whole super app in terms of how we see it, as why it's useful to work on and why we think that there's still a lot of value, even though in the short term, business models are sometimes not as easy to calculate or have a thesis on where we just know that if we have a large uh, kind of trust with user base and distribution, we know that it'll come. Yeah, the SATA guys mentioned that in the last podcast that whoever owns the transaction flow has immense value because you decide where the transactions go. They were talking more on the Oracle side of things. Of course, yeah. Well, they were saying essentially how the, the, the values, essentially the, the demand of the blockchain is what comes and controls the supply. The wallet is, is doing that. And we, as you said, on both pre, post and pre-transaction and even what the user sees. And so that comes into kind of the alpha on well, what we can do as well. 100% biggest just set the scene, warm up the bathtub. Right now, you let's assume that there's a high percentage of users using Meteor as a default wallet. And of those users, a high percentage swaps within the wallet. You can very quickly see a scenario where any new decks launching, when they think of where is the deal flow going to come from, the number one distribution channel becomes a wallet. And the assumption, because I've been involved with Ref since the early days and I've been following that ecosystem for a long time is, the assumption is if you can build something that is very competitive, either like on the technology or on the liquidity side, you just have to be in that distribution channel and then win on the price. So the wallet has a massive edge to create those partnerships. If you're not wise, you could choose a kingmaker and potentially pre uh, preference one over time. But eventually, at least really cheap users like me would realize that if swapping inside the wallet is shit, I'll literally just never do it again. And to be honest, I actually never swapped within MetaMask. I always go to uh, a web app. See, see, I told you there are users <laughs> like me. That, 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 <laughs> the short term, putting fees on swaps and things like that feels too short sighted, right? You, you definitely got a point, Joe. Like, the reason we were not doing that is because as a user of MetaMask and Phantom, I use Phantom very seldomly, but I did only for a small amount, not more than $100. I never use MetaMask for any sort of swap. Because it is crazy, like they're taking 0.5%. That is more than the fee that you're paying the liquidity provider. And what they do is essentially just providing you the front end and you can easily achieve a better user experience just by opening up your browser and keying the, the URL. Video can do this, of course, like if you want to extract that 0.5% value, but it's not going to be sustainable, like you say. 
as soon as users fall off, they're not going to do it anymore. At least MetaMask is crazy because it is so easy to swap between your accounts. It's literally uh, like a drop down. On Near, the annoying thing is it is very easy to swap within the wallet. But on the application, you have to log out, sign a transaction, and then log in with a new one. That's why I usually have my main account on the, say, ref or borrow. And then whatever I get paid into a separate wallet, I swap into USDT, like the native one, and then I send over to an exchange. For small things like that, I just need to do one swap or I get paid in here, swap into ST near. That's the end of the story. 100% I do it within the wallet. In fact, if you look up my volume, you could probably figure out which wallets are mine. So but what's yeah, the alpha? What was the alpha? What was essentially helping users manage their, their keys? You, the said, you, you said you use Vero. How did you use it? What, what do you use it for? Burrow. When I was a child, I figured out that I could stake Solana with Marinade. I could stake with Parrot. And they had this weird shit where they give you P-Sol and something else Sol. And the one that they gave me, I swapped for something else. And then I staked that one in Marinade. So it was like a double liquid staking leverage. And then I borrowed dollars to buy more soul and I leveraged it shit up from 60 bucks to 300. There was a point where I didn't even know how to undo that disaster. And that's how I ended up working for Metapool. I explained to them, you have to be on money markets. They were just launching. I built all those relationships with all those DEXs. We tracked everybody that was meant to be launching. Sadly, a lot of those things uh, fell through and yeah. I got destroyed on the way down. This is, this is never financial advice, but definitely not a good strategy in the bear market. But yeah, I had a lot of a senior borrow USD, bought Marnier, stake it. And yeah, it, it was pretty tragic. Like $12 down, liquidating, like my asshole was bleeding. $7, I had to just close everything up. I gave up at seven. But I gave up at seven with the leverage. I still held on to near, bro. We got to one dollar, and I'm like applying for jobs at McDonald's, like legitimately. This is fucking ridiculous. I can't do this. So anyway, yeah, borrow is my source of depression and insight. <laughs> what about you? Oh, uh, like my name, like my account ID is Red DJ, but I'm not as DJ. Honestly, I've never do the leveraging stuff, but for me. One thing that I'm recently doing is I've got some stables. I deposit my stables. I borrow near. I stake, stake near with Aurora. Aurora is giving off 33%. So guess what? The downside of near going down is none. And my APY climbs up from 6% to now 30% without risk. Then you're muted, sir. Okay. So the number one lesson for the DeFi babies the children bought after the nuclear winter of the 2020s. The APY is misleading because you always have to ask in what currency is the APY being denominated? The Aurora APY is denominated in Aurora. Yes. So there's been like a big 
token appreciation That's recently, really, but yeah. it can be volatile. So just bear in mind that the 33% now may be more or less as the token accrues and, and, and the value changes. Overall, Aurora token suffered so much that some people say it's only up from here. But the interesting thing about Aurora is that it is not an inflationary token, but well, they do have a buyback and burn. I didn't know this. Yeah, so the number of Aurora tokens is limited. There's a shit ton of them, but it's limited. There aren't any more being created. And, fun fact, Aurora is the first smart contract on Nier that is actually using or benefiting from the developer royalties. The new tokenomics, which kicked in about six months ago, maybe a little bit less, what they do is every transaction in Aurora burns Nier, consumes Nier, so they burn 70%, but they keep the 30%. Every single transaction in Aurora from every single smart contract accrues to the one contract. So they take that near that accumulates there from the fees, which is obviously very little on an individual basis, but hundreds of thousands over months, it adds up. And now they're using that to buy back and burn. So technically, if you assume that the transactions are going to remain steady or increase over time, and considering that there's not any new issuance, it could potentially be a good hold into the future. Obviously, there's like a lot of it out there and, and unlocks and whatnot, but tokenomics wise, at least it is technically deflationary. Is it like fully unlocked or you're saying like they're still investing? So they, as part of the tokenomics, they provided a lot of clarity around how much is in circulation, how much is for the team. I think they just relocked it for another few years and how much will be allocated to community initiatives. So if you really wanted to get needed, gritty with the numbers and do your own fucking research, never use anything in this podcast for any type of advice. Don't be self-medicating that herpes you have. <laughs> this is entertainment. This is low quality entertainment. No Don't sue me. Yeah. Um, but I agree with what you say, like the APY is denominated, denominated in um, Aurora, which is the price, which the price is like fluctuating. But here's the thing, when this, let's say Aurora go down and then we, the, the price go down and then we have another version two of staying pool that give you out another token. Let's say this time we have like mana pool token, mana token, and the mana token is pretty steady. The APY is 40%. Now, would you do the same thing, like put in your stables, borrow up near, so you don't have the downside and stick your near with these validators. So you could trade the 5% APY to 40% APY. I would do that. But the issue with most users is to do this first is action-wise pretty complex. Like you first need to understand what is money market, you know what you need to do, and then you need to find the validators. And then you even need to have some financial concept of like, you put in stables, you borrow out near. So like your, if you have a healthy health factor, even though near pick up, you won't get liquidated. But if you borrow out your full capacity, like if near just spike up for one cent, you get, you start to get liquidated. And then that's a penalty to <laughs> I've done that. Near goes up two cents and I'm like, oh, I'm bowling out of control. And then it goes down four cents and I'm like selling shit, borrowing money from like humans to pay back the loan. Like, That's the thing. But what if the worst thing, the worst part is often you need to 
watch the market carefully and from time to time because there's no notification. You wouldn't know when you get liquidated. It's only like when the second day you check your portfolio, it goes down and it can go down very badly if the price fluctuates. I'll give you an example. I know that this is like matrix for time traveling here, but if you remember my comments around airdrops, I give you an example that I hope I'm manifesting into existence. I really hope that quarterly gives out a really chunky airdrop so I can make back all the money that I've lost. <laughs> can we share these podcasts in them? We need to timestamp oh this. God. What was the time now? <laughs> so I've got lost, a couple donations. I've lost money longing BTC at 22,000. And I'm like, how the fuck did this happen? You explained it. I leveraged myself like an arm and a leg in. BTC dropped like $1, liquidated me, and then it fucking blasted to 600,000. I'm like, no. But anyway, but yes, you do have a point. The more of the strategies that can be automated to help users manage the risk, I think would be great. Was that a hint at what you guys are building? Because you've got me on the edge of my seat here. Yeah, and what if it is only one button within your wallet to enable all this? So the funds are sitting in your wallet anyway, right? What if it generates cash for you at a very low risk? The biggest risk is like borough get hacked, um, validators get hacked or whatsoever. But other than that, is it something... So, so, so how many really steps put? are there in the strategy? So it can be more complicated, but like for the 30% of the alpha, it is deposit funds, adjust your collateral. They can be in the same state, but sometimes people do it separately. You need to borrow out near, and then you need to stake near, find a good validators and stake it. Plus, you need to monitor your position from time to time and pay back your loan in case there's a crazy price action. It's not just going down, even going up. I mean, near going up, you have affected draws. There's a couple of things. Jonathan, this is a user interview. This is, I even forgot we were on a podcast. Shit, this is still going. There's a couple of things. First one is, I would try to segment. So for users like my mother, she is a user, by the way. I sent her some Misfits NFTs and some stables every once in a while. I think that she would be thrilled to be able to deposit from the wallet one click and earn some interest from borrow. That's probably as far as she gets. And if you think of that developing market, people that just save in USD, being able to do it within the wallet would be a massive win. I was actually inquiring which wallet could integrate that because if you could get a mobile wallet in the hands of millions and in the same place where they receive the funds, they can earn some interest from a money market, especially because there's been some very high interest rates in money markets recently. Utilization yes. rate, it's like close to 80%, ticks over exactly. 80%, it goes 17%. Like it's actually not yes. a bad time to hold stables. Yeah. But the second category around managing risk, yeah, it's extremely tricky because right now I would be extremely, I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't borrow near with USDS collateral. It, I, I think it's Why? too much. The markets Why? are too jumpy. No, but, but the thing is like with me, you always want to borrow in the direction of the market. Like right now, I think that a better strategy would be you deposit a senior and then you borrow near at the moment, it's like 3% and then you stake it again. That's a decent loop. That is decent. I agree. 
No, that no, is very but, but it, it, it never liquidates. As long as the interest rate that you're being charged is less than the staking rewards, it never liquidates. In fact, I'll tell you what I'm doing on Borrow right now. And this is too much alpha. People are going to track my wallets. It's a big dick, Wally 99. I use my STNIR and I was holding ETH because I'm not retarded. Trader. But it was naked ETH. And now you can stake ETH. So what I do now is STNIR is collateral. I borrow ETH from borrow cash at 0.20% interest. I transfer that shit out to anywhere I can and I stake it for three-ish plus percent. So I'm earning a spread on the borrowed yes. ETH. And then I use the ETH as collateral somewhere else. And that is it, yeah, sometimes you need a spreadsheet for this stuff. That is like not a, financial advice. That's like basically arbitraging the interest difference or like the APY difference between different assets and probably like different. I love that. Uh, some people watch Netflix. I do some complex operations for earning cents in the dollar. Honestly, it's not about the money anymore. I just enjoy it. Use DeFi recipes, right? And I think that at the end of the day, as you said, there's a product for most users. And then I think that there's potentially different risk appetites for other users that are willing to be a little bit more risk. They have a little bit more appetite for risk and just understand something. And I think as a one, it like we could potentially facilitate some of that and just make managing it easy and still making it very transparent and easy for people to do it. And and that's essentially that's giving convenience and helping users maximize value, right? So it's, it's I think that's for us where, where as a one, it's like helping someone have a front end to a swap where we actually, we're actually doing things of value. Can I go back? I, I need to say this because go back to your strategy just now. You said like you deposit you and then you just borrow out tenure, you stake it. Like you say, you never get liquidated. I wanted to say that this is actually good for users like you as a wallet. What we care about is whether or not we keep, we generate more use for users in terms of dollar value. Whatever you did just now is failing, but you might still lose money in terms of dollar value if near goes down, right? If near right now, $2.5, go down to $1.5, then you lose money. But what if you deposit stables, then you would never lose money. If near goes down, it's fine. If near goes up, we pay your loan. That's it. And on top of that, you are getting the 20 to 40% if you are on what near staking is giving you right now. I think they're like, yeah, go ahead. It 100% depends on the customer segment that you're going after. Like my mom, low risk. Naked USD, the deposit is fine. Four percent, that's all she needs. Eight percent, it's incredible. Dude, right now, my parents have bank accounts in Panama. Those fucking bastards charge you for everything. Like we're losing money on those accounts. The interest One rate is zero percent. Really? Yeah, of course. No joke. No so if you see. tell someone you can earn eight percent on your savings, they'd be like, "Why have I not been doing this before?" And that's even before we get to the real world assets, the USD, Y, O, Ondo. There's a few out there where Dias the stablecoin is actually backed by treasuries. So they have like real yield from the world. That's even before you start loaning it out. So mm. there's a lot of alternatives out there that, once again, if you can own the distribution channel, it's more of a question of how do we get this in the hands of 100 million people? 100%. Do you guys have statistics around the distribution of users between the web wallet, the wallet extension, and the mobile wallet? 
I would say like we don't have a mobile wallet, so we can say on behalf of that, but like on, on between the web and the extension, I would say like it's around seven to 80 to 20. It turned out like very little people are using, actually using extension. I actually started that Wait, using what? extension. 70 to 80 are using the web wallet? Yeah. Why is it surprising? That's, that's the that's last the time. That's the native experience that everyone's used to, right? On you. Wait, what? You are you serious? And you don't have to download anything. That's a huge thing. Like even for myself, right now, Why? I'm my, I switch from extension. Why am I consistently in my life in the minority? Am I a genius or am I retarded? <laughs> everything I've said, everything I've said around the convenience of swapping accounts and swapping and shit was having the extension in the little corner. Is that not a thing? Oh, but for Media Wallet, even the web versions work for like an extension when it comes to signing transactions. We don't redirect you. We give you a pop-up. So it works like extension and it's pretty convenient. That's why basically you just don't download, but you still get the extension. That is super wild. That was 100% not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> okay, I need to recover emotionally for this. Jonathan, say something. <laughs> Wow. Um, what about my near wallet? Like, how are you managing? Is it the same team managing both teams? Because this seems to me like a parent saying he yeah. loves both child equally. But let's be honest, there's lots um, of favorites. This is even this Jonathan. You want to, well, I think like maybe you're you're the one who submitted a proposal, right? Hey. No, but look at the end of the day, the near ecosystem needs they need this wallet to be maintained, right? They had they lost confidence with the, with the previous provider. And they put it up a bit. And, uh, and I think there were other teams that applied that didn't come from the wide landscape. And, and you need to ask yourself the question, do you want an existing team that's familiar with kind of everything wallet related and all the NEVs and things like that to manage and maintain this wallet? And if the goal is to maintain it and not innovate, or do you want a random team to come in and to just like tinker around? And so I think at, from the, the people that voted on the proposal, I was clear that they did trust that we were familiar enough the goal was not to innovate and build this out. The goal is to maintain this and provide a consistent and secure and familiar experience. And who knows? I think that the strategy of Mania wanted going forward is, is up to the foundation. It is, it's an open source one. It's there. It's great. I think that the ecosystem needs to be confident that there's going to be other alternative wallets that are competitive enough or open source or before that then phases out. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a... <laughs> I'm not sure what would have been a, a better alternative to another wallet team managing it. I would say there's limited conflict of kind of interests there. Yeah. And on top of that, like in our initial proposal, we actually thought of using the same core for both wallets, which means whatever we're building for Meteor Wallet B2 will be put inside my new wallet. So that also minimized the conflict of interest. That's part of our um, initial proposal. Just kill the whole thing. Kill the whole thing. Fork the existing meter wallet. Maybe fork like the version five version. Just use the domain name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not something we can do because in part of the agreement that we got from the foundation, we cannot rebrand this. Look, and that's I, I, like a rebrand. One of the things is, even from the foundation level, I think that they're exploring like what is the next route, and they actually want to also get that guidance from the ecosystem on like, what should be happening with finding wallet. I foresee it being maintained, like I said, until kind of there's a general consensus that. There are alternative wallets that are secure, auditor, 
potentially open source, whatever it might be. I don't think we're there yet. I think that potentially the mining one it should be maintained for another a year or two or whatever it is. And then if there's any sunsetting scenarios, maybe, maybe, maybe different. First, how do you see the future of like abstraction in general, wallet abstraction, chain abstraction, everything is being abstracted. Do you think that the wallet as we know it may change or are you worried? Do you see opportunity? 100% it's going to happen. It's either the dice or we're going to see huge abstraction surrounding user experience, different layers of blockchains and also wallets. And yes, that's just an opportunity. In fact, we are pretty proud and we feel pretty lucky that we're on near because that's the main narrative and the general direction of the entire ecosystem. But if you get abstracted away, do you still exist? Abstract. So the wallet abstractions is in a way not abstracting us out, but removing that mind burden from users. Like right now, if users go to a blockchain, they need to know which blockchain I'm on, which is native currency, which gas am I using? What wallet do I need to use? All these sort of burden and unnecessarily things just make it a lot more harder to pick up cryptos. So imagine in the future, let's say 10 years down, we got a wallet and then you just go to, let's say there's a wallet and then you can just actually go to any dApps, interact with it. You don't need to know which gas you need to pay. You don't need to know you need to pay near. You don't need to have Ethereum. You just have fiat in your local currency, paid it. The gas is automatically paid. It gets the bridge to any blockchain it needs to do what DA layer it's using, whatever, modular blockchains, just get everything done, come back to your wallet. So that's the abstraction one to do. So even as we abstract everything, the wallet is not being abstracted as in out of existence. From what I see, I don't think wallet is going to get abstracted because that's essentially how users see their funds. They Let's replace wallet as a blockchain client. So when we use client, in software world, it means something users can interact with. So users definitely need to interact with something. They cannot just interact with blockchain directly. That something is off the wallet. At least from what we can imagine right now, it's going to be what. Pretty good explanation. Jonathan, do you have any fears of abstraction? No, few cents for that. I think what it just mentioned, we're at the top of the funnel. I think there's limited risk can be abstracted out there. Next one, fast auth, yay or nay? Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%, yeah. Do I need to explain or like what? Uh, okay. Fa fa fast round gives you a pass. Next one. ZK everything. Does it matter? What should we be paying attention to? ZK wasn't, ZK babies, what's happening? Unfortunately, this is not something like I, I know a lot about, but no, we don't need to ZK everything. It's going to be a waste of resource. Final. On the topic of the super apps, I've always been fascinating that it's massive in Asia, like it clearly works and it seems to be a better way of doing things. But as I tried to create a Telegram bot yesterday, I'm not going to say why, I learned about this capability to create relatively powerful apps within Telegram. You can use JavaScript, etc. And as far as I'm concerned, it's never really taken off. So I'm curious. If you have any ideas as to what might be some of the barriers for this kind of like super app adoption or any examples that you may be paying attention to and using as a, as inspiration. Uh, I'll take this one, maybe Jonathan can explain later. I think this is not just on Telegram, but generally between Asia and Western. 
So SuperApp is a huge thing in Asia, but it never really got into the Western world. A valid explanation from my perspective is that because Western countries has adopted, has widely adopted payment method with design master credit cards. And when it comes to SuperApp, no matter what type of SuperApp you are, you're always going to have this payment integrated into it. So when it comes to SuperApp, I think there are generally at least three common characteristics. First is the core use cases, be it, be it like e-howling for delivery or whatsoever. They often start up with a core use case that involves payments. So payments is the second characteristic. They often have payments. Whatever SuperApp you look into today, like Shopee, Grab, Uber, whatsoever in Asia, they always have payment. The third thing is third-party integrations. So with these three things, I would say payment is almost the most important thing that enables everything else. And this payment, unfortunately, in Western is not adopted enough because I think a lot of Westerners are already quite comfortable with paying with Visa and MasterCard. But in Asia, a lot of people don't get access to Visa and MasterCard. So we started using mobile apps and we are more like e-wallet native users. So we have just become a little bit easier to get adopted in Asia. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see also what happens with, with kind of the wireless space in Africa. It's like a whole unbanked large population relative to the rest of the world being unbanked. And also it's like a massively, I think when you look at the population of Africa, it's going to be growing at the fastest rate, like mass going forward. And so that's where also like maybe the African market might be able to leap for these users to get, go from almost really limited infrastructure, kind of financial uh, capability into kind of uh, an interesting kind of mobile e-wallet experience. So that's also something we're quite interested about. Yeah, just really briefly, a moment to be commenting on the fast round, but I'm pretty bad at this. I think that in Asia, the fees have been a big limiting factor for these foreign companies like Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. In the West, it's fucking KYC. The regulation around having alternative payment rails is just extremely onerous. I think in Africa, as you mentioned, Jonathan, it may have to strip in like the core infrastructure or the internet or the terminals or, or whatever, but it's going to be interesting to see how all those forces sort themselves out. Final one. I'm buying a flight tomorrow. It could be to which city Malaysia. are you in, Edward? Malaysia. Definitely Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Fuck South Africa. You have to come to Kuala Lumpur. The internet is so Shame. Cape Town. I think if you have to ask most people, Cape Town has got beautiful scenery, beautiful quality of life, very, the same price if you were to go to Thailand, you can come to Cape Town, which is, so Cape Town is affordable. It's good, really good tech scene. It has a Western cultural elements as well, which people enjoy. I don't know. I feel like Cape Town is a great place. I've been to KL. I went to go visit Edward that side. Nice place. I think it was one of my favorite cities in, in Southeast Asia, but I think Cape Town is definitely the one. Although I'm not even patriotic, but I think Edward gets particularly touched when he has the opposing opinions from others. So far, Jonathan has made an excellent argument. I think he's winning. Edward, would you like to have a rebuttal or a second? Oh yeah, of course. Malaysia is really great for it. Like we have, well, the, the population is made up of spicy and not spicy. So like generally made up of three different races. We've got the Chinese, Indian, Malays. So of the Asian cuisine, or like I would say 70 to 80%. You get the taste of it in Malaysia. And like the thing is super incredibly cheap. Like the red dough is so cheap that like you can live almost like a king with 2.5 thousand US dollars per month. Almost like a king. 
and like the rental is probably like $400. And the facilities in the city not as bad considered how cheap it is. Public transport is good. And then there are like shopping malls. You got a lot of nice things. E-commerce is great. Convenience store is also good. People are also pretty and handsome. My English is not too bad, right? Yeah. I, I think Kerala is decent for English compared to the rest of kind of Southeast Asia. But you come to Cape Town, you speak in English. Everybody's speaking English. We are friendly and it's all like a But South Africa's but an amazing cultural industry. So you talk about the restaurants here. Yeah, we're talking about top-end fine dining, like top, top-end fine dining in Cape Town with like world-class chefs. You're going for like maybe $50 a head. I'm talking about world, world class. Okay, we're wow. going to see that. Like standard restaurants, I think it's going to be a lot less than that, of course. Food, we, we can match you there. Beauty, English, culture. <laughs> on there. We got to do like have a ticket to both cities then, and you will tell us. Yeah, I think uh, I'm not going to announce the winner just yet. And we care for this, so, yeah, the, the winner will just be the first one, and we obviously have to go to both. Friends, this has been amazing. Is there anything else you would like to plug, mention, rant about? No, not really. I've spent enough time with you for today. <laughs> I've used all my money code out with you, sir. Wow. Uh, emotional damage. Podcast is yeah, but I appreciate it. Uh, no, but yeah. in all seriousness, I remember getting coming to the near space and seeing your podcast and everything that, that you do. I think is great and amazing. Mm -hmm. So I've definitely learned a lot in, in some of the content there. Appreciate time and keep doing what you're doing as well. Thanks. Yeah, and Thank like you. um, what you're doing is I think really a lot more undervalued. Like conversations like this, it could be heard by a lot of people, and I think like people just don't appreciate it enough. But yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for doing this for the questions. Fantastic way to end on a depressing note, but <laughs> no, thank you. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. And we'll keep it going for sure. Especially, I look forward to editing because it, Jonathan has been pixelated the whole call. What? Yeah. <laughs> you have. But, but telling me like actual recording in higher quality. Yes, friends. Thanks so much. I look forward to releasing this one. Stay safe. Cheers. You too. Cheers. Come to Malaysia first. Hey, cheers. Bye-bye. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.